0: Thank you very much. I need to begin with just a word about the meaning of the word history, because in English the word has at least three meanings. It can mean what happened in the past. It can mean the study of what happened in the past, the subject we call history, which is studied in academic departments of history, or the word history could mean literature about what happened in the past. If we want to want to be more precise, we could call the last of these historiography. What historians write is historiography. And in these lectures, I shall be concerned with historiography. That's why I've given them the overall title, The Gospels as Histories, plural. So I'm not concerned, at least not directly, there will be some uh, spin-offs, but not directly with the question whether the Gospels are reliable records of what happened in the past, but rather with the question, what sort of history are they? The Gospels are certainly histories in some sense. They purport to inform their readers about events that have happened in the past. But what sort of history? We must appreciate that they're is not just one way of writing history. In the Greco-Roman world of antiquity, the context in which the Gospels were written, there were various kinds of literature written about the past. In the modern world, as the academic discipline of history has developed over the last two centuries, there have also been different kinds of historiography. In these lectures, I shall be comparing the Gospels with the sorts of historiography we can identify in other ancient literature, to see where the Gospels should be placed on the spectrum of historical writing of their time. And I shall also be comparing the Gospels with some modern approaches to history, because I think that this too can illuminate the character of the Gospels. It would, of course, be anachronistic simply to put the Gospels into any modern category of historiography, but I think that some modern approaches to history can alert us to aspects of the Gospels we might not have noticed or appreciated otherwise. But for this lecture, we shall stay in the ancient world, and there are two books that, in my view, must be foundational for any attempt to place the Gospels within the map of ancient historiography. The first is Richard Burridge's book, What Are the Gospels? A Comparison with Greco-Roman Biography, first published in 1992. And the second is by the Swedish New Testament scholar Samuel Biersko and entitled Story as History, History as Story, The Gospels in the Context of Ancient Oral History. It was first published in 2000. These two books take two different approaches to our question, what sort of history are the Gospels? Barrage relates them to ancient biography. Biersker relates them to ancient historiography. And there is a a significant difference here because the ancients themselves distinguished between what they called historiography and what they called Biography. We'll discover how they did it later. But I think Barrage and Biasco are both right, as you will see. And they have laid the foundations on which anything else I say on this topic must be based. So let's begin with Barrage. Whereas for most of the 20th century it was customary for scholars to deny, often with considerable assurance, that the Gospels are our biography, it has now become common to maintain quite the opposite, that the literary genre of the Gospels is that of ancient biography. It is important to say ancient biography because no significant comparison with modern biography is really being suggested. The genre of the Gospels must be established from study of the ancient literature contemporary with them, and Barrage's argument is that they are and would have been recognized by their early readers or hearers. As, um, as the kind of literature the ancients usually called just lives, uh, Bioi in Greek, vitae in Latin. Burridge was not the first to argue this in the later part of the 20th century. A growing number of scholars had been making the same argument. Burrage's is simply the most thorough and convincing study, and its results have been very widely accepted. Burridge worked with a number of examples of Greek and Roman biographies and gathered a series of generic features that he suggests as criteria for recognising the genre of bios. A work need not have all these characteristics to belong to the genre, but it will have enough to be recognised as a bios by those used to reading works of that kind. I'm not going to go into his detailed argument, the Uh, characteristics of the genre and uh, the way he discovers them in the Gospels. I want to presuppose that argument um, and take for granted, for these purposes, that Burridge has demonstrated very well that the Gospels would well have been recognized by their contemporaries as falling into the literary genre of ancient biography. But I do want to draw attention to some points that Burridge makes, which will be important. Drawing on general studies of literary genre, Burridge stresses that genres develop and change. Genres, he says, are dynamic and flexible groupings whose boundaries and labels shift. So he is not arguing that there is nothing new about the Gospels. They most plausibly represent a relatively novel development within the broad and flexible genre of ancient biography. Moreover, different genres influence each other and mix. Quoting Alistair Fowler's work on the theory of genres, Burridge speaks of, quote, multifarious extensions and interactions of genre. Thus, the boundaries between genres are not hard and fast, but porous and movable. This leads to the important topic of genera proxima, meaning neighbouring genres. In relation to a given genre, there may be other genres that resemble it in some ways. And this close relationship enables influence and borrowing from one genre to another. Of the ancient Greco-Roman period, Burridge writes that there was a lot of interplay and overlap between genres, particularly works at the edge of one genre and influenced by another. Or again, the boundaries between bios and any of the genera proxima neighbouring genres are flexible, and so borrowing or sharing of generic features across the border is to be expected. Burridge provides a map of the various genres that overlap biography, such as moral philosophy, novel, history, and encomium. The genres that especially overlap and influence Bioi biographies, are encomium, which means a work written in praise of an individual, and history, in the narrow sense that it had in Greek and Roman literature, that is, political history. We shall be concerned especially with this latter. The close relationship between biography and history suggests that we may be able to identify some biographies that come especially close to historiography as practiced by the Greek and Roman historians. The strength of Burridge's successful demonstration that the Gospels belong to the ancient genre of biography lies in its generality. By showing that the genre was broad and flexible, he makes room for the Gospels within it and shows that they are no more different from other examples of the genre uh, than some other examples are from still others. He scarcely attempts to go beyond this general conclusion to locate the Gospels more precisely within the diverse range of ancient biographies. Are they more like some of the ancient biographies we know or more like others? Part of the difficulty, perhaps the reason Burridge did not go into this, is that we lack any useful typology of the various types of biography that were written in antiquity. Attempts that have been made in the past have been largely discredited and we do not have an up-to-date and and usable uh, typology of ancient biographies. Now, I'm not going to attempt a full classification of types of biography in 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 the ancient world today. But for the purposes of proceeding to think more precisely about the sort of biography the Gospels are, I want to refer to three different sorts of criteria that differentiate some biographies from others. The first is an obvious one and was well recognized in antiquity. We can categorize biographies by the different kinds of figures they concern. Rulers, generals, poets, philosophers, and so forth. And we can recognize here two main categories Um, and a third, much more problematic one. First, there are political biographies, those of rulers, politicians, lawgivers, and military commanders. For example, all of Plutarch's many biographies fall into this category. And secondly, there are intellectual biographies, those of writers and thinkers, poets, dramatists, and philosophers. And many of these are designed as companions to the writings of the biography. I've invented, I don't know whether other people use it or not, but I've invented the word biography for the person about whom a biography is written. It's quite quite a useful term, I think. Um, And thirdly, more difficult to identify is a category of holy men. In other words, people who were not only wise teachers, but also in a special relationship to the divine. Candidates would be the life of Apollonius of Tyana, which I shall tell you something about tomorrow, um, a couple of lives by Lucian, perhaps Porphyry's life of Plotinus. But these are actually a very motley crew. All except Alexander the False Philosopher. Um, were philosophers of a sort and he pretended to be a philosopher and so they overlap with the intellectual category so we have a rather a problematic category it's much more difficult to define it the gospels might belong to this category but it's worth noting at this point that the category is very problematic It's worth noticing one virtue of Burridge's argument for the Gospels as biographies is that it does not require us to put the figure of Jesus into some category of types of biographies in order to see that the Gospels are biographies. As far as Burridge's account of the genre goes, any sort of figure could be the subject of the biography. So perhaps the Gospels do not see Jesus as belonging to any of the kinds of persons that biographers usually chose to write about. Now the second way I suggest that biographies can be categorized is by distinguishing between lives of contemporary and non-contemporary figures. Effectively, this is to distinguish from others a category of lives of individuals with whom the biographer had himself had personal contact, or at least about whom he had learned from people who did know the person well. And there are quite a number of such biographies, uh, including Lucian's biography of the philosopher Demonax, uh, with whom he has studied, um, the Xenophon's life of Agesilaus, the Spartan king, uh, he had served under tacitus 's life of Agricola, the Roman politician who was his own father in law and so on. Sometimes biographies were even written during the subject 's lifetime. by contrast with such contemporary biographies, many were written long after, even centuries after the biography 's death. The importance of this distinction is that it corresponds to a distinction, which was important to ancient writers, between contemporary and non-contemporary history. Although non-contemporary history was written, it was not really esteemed like contemporary history, because in the case of non-contemporary history, all one could really do was repeat what earlier historians had said, Whereas in the case of contemporary history, the historian was expected to write on the basis of eyewitness testimony to events, either his own or that of people he had personally met and been able to interview about the events he recounted. Good history rested on such immediate personal sources, much more than on written documents. And so by definition, it had to be contemporary history the history of events within living memory. Particularly in view of the closeness of historiography and biography as overlapping proxima genre, I'll say a little more about that in a moment, we should expect that these kinds of judgments could also apply to the case of biography. The writer of a contemporary biography would be expected to have personal knowledge of his subject or at least close contact with people who had known him. The fact that some such biographers were at pains to point out that they had such eyewitness access to their subjects confirms that this was indeed expected. The Gospels we may just note for the time being were written within living memory of Jesus, probably rather late in that period, but in my view not accidentally at a time when some eyewitnesses at least were still living and could tell their stories. My third third criterion for classifying biographies is close relationship to proxima genera, proxima genera, neighbouring genres. Because of my project in these lectures, I focus on historiography, certainly one of the most important proxima genera for biography. Now, some ancient writers did draw a distinction, a clear and important distinction to them, between biography and history. Certainly, historians and biographers had different perspectives. They had different perspectives on important individuals who might appear in both types of work. For the historian, concerned uh, with the individual's role in the wider course of events, material of great interest to the biographer might be quite irrelevant to the historian and vice versa. For the biographer, personal anecdotes of no significance to the historian could be fascinating insights into character. So there were serious differences, but at the same time, there must also be considerable overlap and this is clear in the oft-quoted remarks of Cornelius Nepos and Plutarch about the difference between history and biography, precisely because the two genres overlapped and might be in danger of coalescing, these two biographers needed carefully to differentiate the two. And finally, very importantly, I think it's worth noticing that while such writers distinguish the aims and content of biography from history, they do not suggest that the biographer's method, the biographer's access to sources and use of sources, should be different from that of the historian. We can readily understand that biographies such as these could take what was acknowledged as best practice in historiography as the ideal also um, for the biographer. However, this close relationship between biography and history would seem to apply only in the case of political biography, uh, the lives of rulers, politicians, and military commanders. And this is necessarily the case because only political history qualified as history in the terminology of the ancients. The heroes of historiography, in fact almost the only persons who appear as individuals, in historiography, are the movers and shakers, the politicians and the generals. This would seem to preclude the Gospels, whose subject is not a politician or a general, from being biographies close to historiography. And I note simply at this point that difficulty, to which we shall return and perhaps have an answer by the end of the lecture. However, at this point, I want to introduce Samuel Biersko's contribution to our subject in his book, History as Story, Story as History. Biersko compares the practice of Greco-Roman historians with the fairly recent modern historical discipline of oral history and finds the role of eyewitness informants very similar in both. As I've indicated already, the major Greco-Roman historians, writers such as Thucydides, Polybius, Josephus, and Tacitus believed that true history could be written only while events were still within living memory. And they valued as their sources the oral reports of direct experience of events by involved participants in them. Ideally, the historian himself should have been a participant in the events he narrates. As, for example, Xenophon, Thucydides, and Josephus were... But since he could not have been at all the events he recounts or in all the places he describes, the historian also had to rely on eyewitnesses whose living voices they could hear and whom they could question for themselves. Now, of course, not all historians lived up to these ideals, and most employed oral traditions and written sources at least to supplement the historian's knowledge. But the standards set by such as Thucydides and Polybius were historiographical best practice to which other historians aspired or at least paid lip service. Good historians were highly critical of those who relied largely on written sources. That some historians pretended to first hand knowledge they did not really have is backhanded support for the acknowledged necessity of eyewitness testimony in historiography. A point that Bierskog stresses, and very important I think for thinking about the Gospels, is that for Greek and Roman historians, the ideal witness was not the dispassionate observer, but the person who as a participant had been close to the events and whose direct experience enabled them to understand and interpret the significance of what they had seen. The historians, says Biersko, preferred the eyewitness who was socially involved, or even better, had been actively participating in the events. Involvement was not an obstacle to a correct understanding of what they perceived as historical truth. It was rather the essential means to a correct understanding of what had really happened. So the coherence, as it were, of fact and meaning empirical report and engaged interpretation, which in fact we find to some extent in all history, was not a problem for these historians in antiquity. Eyewitnesses were as much interpreters as, as observers, and their accounts became essential parts of the historians' writings. In this way, these ancient historians' approach bears quite close comparison with modern oral history. All historians recognise, on the one hand, that bare facts do not make history and the subjective aspects of an eyewitness's experience and memory are themselves evidence that historians should not regard, should not discard. While, on the other hand, it's also important to realise that a person involved in events remembers them better than a disinterested observer. Having established the key role of eyewitness testimony in ancient historiography, Biersko argues that a similar role must have been played in the formation of the Gospel traditions and the Gospels themselves by individuals who are qualified to be both eyewitnesses and informants about the history of Jesus. <clears throat> he attempts to identify such eyewitnesses and to find traces of their testimony in the Gospels. Stressing that they, like the historians and their informants, would have been involved participants who not only remembered facts, but naturally also interpreted in the process of experiencing and remembering. Hence the title of Biersko's book, Story is History, History is Story. He says the gospel narratives are thus syntheses of history and story, of the oral history of an eyewitness and the interpretive and narrativizing procedures of an author. Notably in Biersko's account, the eyewitnesses do not disappear behind the long process of anonymous transmission and formation of traditions by Christian communities as the influential model originated by the form critics in the early 20th century supposed Rather, the eyewitnesses remained an influential presence in the communities, people who could be consulted, people who told their stories and whose oral accounts lay at no great distance from the textualized form the Gospels gave them. Biesco's work was one of the starting points for my own work on the Gospels and the Eyewitnesses in my book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, The Gospels as Eyewitness Testimony, which was published in 2006. In that book, I developed a thoroughgoing alternative to the dominant picture in 20th century gospel scholarship of how the the traditions about Jesus reached the evangelists and were incorporated in their gospels. Developing Biersko's model of ancient oral history, I proposed that the eyewitnesses of the history of Jesus remained throughout their lifetimes the accessible sources and authoritative guarantors of the traditions that they themselves had formulated in the beginning. The Gospels were written during the period between the middle and the end of the first century when the direct testimony of the eyewitnesses was still available though of course becoming unavailable as they died. It's also a key component of my argument that the Gospel traditions were not, for the most part, transmitted anonymously, as usually assumed, but were associated with the eyewitnesses from whom they derived, especially the Twelve, but also others. In general, I argued that the texts of the four Gospels, as we have them, are quite close to the way the eyewitnesses themselves told their stories – Allowing, of course, for the shaping of the materials by the evangelists themselves. One of the Gospels, I very unfashionably think the Gospel of John, was written by the beloved disciple, it claims as its author, comes directly from an eyewitness who was in touch with a circle of other key eyewitnesses. While Mark and Luke were directly indebted to other key eyewitnesses sources, including the official tradition of the Twelve Apostles and the testimony of some of the women disciples of Jesus. The most helpful category with which to characterise the sort of histories the Gospels are is therefore eyewitness testimony, and I developed that model of testimony in a theological as well as a historical way in my book. Testimony is not in itself a literary genre of the Greco-Roman world, but it is a key characteristic of the ancient genre of historiography. In Burridge's technical terms, testimony is not a genre but a mode of literature. As I've said, good historiography in the ancient world was expected to rely on and incorporate first-hand testimony. Now, my intention in our present context is not to argue my thesis about the eyewitness character of the four Gospels, which I've done at length in the book. Rather, I want to go on from that thesis to explore other aspects of the Gospels as historiography. But I have rehearsed the main conclusions of my work on the Gospel eyewitnesses because they do depend on comparing the Gospels with the practice of Greek and Roman historians, as Biersko in particular expounds it. In that sense, I have expanded and provided a deeper and broader basis in the study of the Gospels for Biersko's claim that in this respect at least the Gospels are closer to Greek and Roman historiography than has usually been allowed. But to return to genre, Biesco is content to speak broadly about historiography and not to examine more than in passing the generic difference between historiography as ancient historians strictly defined it as political history, the difference between historiography and the ancient genre of biography. In my view, this need not bring his arguments into conflict with Richard Burridge's conclusions about gospel genre, Precisely because of the overlapping and mutual influence of the two genres of historiography and biography. Especially when we are considering, as we are in the case of the Gospels, contemporary biography written within the lifetime of eyewitnesses, what Biersko identifies as the oral historical method of the ancient historians is what we should expect also to have been practiced by the biographers. And this is just what we find when we study the Gospels from this perspective. Historiographical practice crossed the generic boundary. I want to stress at this point the evidence we have already noted for the reliance on eyewitness eyewitness testimony in contemporary biographies that are not political biographies. And in my book I've actually argued... Some of these biographies share particular literary ways of indicating their eyewitness sources. Uh, They share those ways with the Gospels. However, I'm not quite content with leaving the Gospels in this rather indeterminate category of non-political biographies indebted to some aspect of historiographical method. Let's return to the matter of different types of biography and the difficulty we noted of placing the Jesus of the Gospels in a character in a category along with other subjects of ancient biography I think discussions of the Gospels and ancient biography have been too prone to assimilate the Jesus of the Gospels or the Jesus of any one gospel to one of the types of figure that extant ancient biography treats. Uh, Most popular, and in some ways the obvious choice if one is to do this, is the lives of philosophers. However, I find myself the differences between the Gospels and the lives of philosophers are quite considerable. And it would be more plausible to see Jesus as a unique figure among the biographies of antiquity. Now this is not at all to return to the old view that Gospels are generically unique because the sort of person who is the subject of a biography is not a criterion of genre. For example if the archaeologists were to find a Papyrus copy of the life of an Olympic athlete, a subject not at all like any of the extant biographies, it would still be uncontroversially a bios. However, different the evangelists considered Jesus to be from the subjects of other biographies, it was still a biography of Jesus that each of them wrote. That observation is crucial. Um, to what I want to go on to do in the rest of today's lecture, which is to take up uh, some aspects of the Gospels um, that recent discussion of their genre has tended to neglect and to see how this fits with the um, more widely accepted uh, arguments that I've uh, outlined so far. These neglected aspects... Of the Gospels, neglected in this particular context, um, are the Christologies of the Gospels and the relationships between the Gospels and the history recounted in the Hebrew Bible. Christology first. Whatever various scholars might think of the historical Jesus, in none of the Gospels is Jesus merely a wise teacher or even merely a wise teacher who is especially close to the divine and who performs miracles. In addition to those things, the Jesus of all the Gospels is the Messiah, the Son of God, not a Son of God, as perhaps the centurion in Mark's Gospel concludes, but the unique Son of God who is the unique Messiah, the one who comes to implement the rule of God in Israel and the world. Now, by by identifying Jesus as Messiah, the Gospels place their stories within a strong meta-narrative, the grand narrative that runs through the Hebrew Bible from Genesis onwards. With the arrival of the Messiah foretold by the prophets, this grand narrative comes to a climax. So the Gospels understand themselves to be continuing and bringing to its climax the biblical history of God's purpose for Israel and the world. It is important to stress that in the expectation of the prophets, the future blessing of Israel was to be also salvation for the nations. It is an Israel-centered expectation, but also an expectation of salvation that will go out from Israel into the rest of the world. As the Messiah who fulfills this expectation, who comes to implement God's rule in its eschatological reality, Jesus is by definition unique and also by definition of significance for the whole world. Nothing resembling this could be said of any of the other individuals who are the subjects of other Greco-Roman biographies, not even Alexander the Great, who perhaps comes closest in universal significance. Now, I do not think this continuity with the Hebrew Bible provides a genre for the Gospels, as though it were some alternative to Greco-Roman biography, such as sacred history or salvation history, as some scholars have argued. The Gospels are concentrated on the single man Jesus in a way that is otherwise true only of biographies. There is nothing like it in the Hebrew Bible, Even when parts of the biblical history do focus for some time on a particular person, such as Abraham or Moses or David, they do not achieve the exclusive concentration on one person that we find in the Gospels. Nor are the literary forms of the smaller units that compose the Gospels easy to parallel in the Hebrew Bible to any extent. The Gospels do not actually read, for the most part, like Old Testament history. The reason for this, I think, is that the Gospel writers wanted to write of the way the biblical history had come to a climax in the story of this one man, the Messiah, the Son of God. With the coming of the Messiah, the story was now concentrated in his history, albeit this was a history with universal significance. Therefore, the genre of biography, with its unique focus on a single individual, was the appropriate genre in which to to cast this sequel to biblical history. So the Gospels are indeed ancient biographies, but they are also written in deliberate continuity with the history of the Hebrew Bible. This placing of themselves at the climax of a universal meta-narrative is what makes their subject, Jesus, unique among the biographies of ancient bioi. And perhaps this is the point at which we can usefully rethink the tendency of scholars to align the Gospels with philosophical biography rather than with political biography. The Jesus of the Gospels is certainly more than a teacher. As the Messiah, he is in fact, as all four Gospels stress, a king. He is the king who is to reign in God's universal kingdom. Perhaps we could see the Gospels as a kind of anti-political biography. I don't mean non-political, as though the Gospels were unconcerned with the political realities that impacted the lives of Jesus' hearers. Politics and religion are not easily separable in the ancient world. But what I mean by an anti-political biography is that Jesus and the rule of God are presented as an alternative to the political system in which the subjects of the ancient political biographies, the strong men and the military men, wielded their power. And in my concluding section, let me illustrate how the Gospels present this perspective by looking at the way two of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, begin. The way books begin is always significant. It's how readers get a sense of what sort of literature, in this case what sort of biography, they are reading. Since both Matthew and Luke recount a story of the birth of Jesus near the beginning of their narratives, it would be especially clear to readers of these Gospels that they have to do with biography. But the beginnings of these Gospels also root their narratives in biblical history. In Matthew's case, you remember, he begins with the genealogy, a very subtly composed genealogy of Jesus' descent from Abraham and David. The genealogy shows Jesus to be both the Messiah for Jews descended from Abraham, uh, descended from David, uh, both the Messiah for Jews descended from David, and also the offspring of Abraham, the Messiah for Gentiles. The genealogy itself, therefore, introduces Jesus as a person of uniquely universal significance, presaging the Great Commission at the end of the Gospel, where Jesus sends out his disciples to all the nations. But Matthew's genealogy also functions to resume, in a way, the whole of biblical history from Abraham onwards. For suitably qualified Jewish readers, all those names in the genealogy would not be mere names, but would evoke the key developments in the biblical story of Israel. So Matthew's story of of Jesus is well-rooted in the biblical meta-narrative. But there is also, early in the story, a political dimension, even if that isn't already evoked by the genealogy of Jesus' descent from David. In Matthew's narrative, Jesus is scarcely born before we hear of King Herod and the Magi who come to him seeking a newborn king. The narrative develops by way of ironic contrast between the two kings, the one Herod in desperate fear of his possible rival, Jesus. In Luke's case, the continuity with the biblical history is initially evoked by the language that Luke uses in the first two chapters of his Gospel. For Luke is a writer who varies his style according to its suitability for the subject matter. Here he uses a biblical style, which almost subliminally works to place readers within the orbit of the Hebrew Bible. He also begins his story in the Jerusalem Temple, the heart of the Jewish theocracy. But differently from Matthew, Luke is less interested in Herod than he is in Caesar, It was, so to speak, on the Emperor Augustus' orders that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, fulfilling the prophetic expectation and aligning Jesus with David, whose descendant he is. The link, of course, is ironic. The child born to a poor family, his birth announced to mere shepherds, contrasts radically with the man who wields ultimate power over most of the world. Contrast suggests that the messianic peace proclaimed by the angels to the shepherds contrasts with the Pax Romana, the boasted Roman peace that was maintained throughout the empire by military brutality. In both these Gospels, readers learn that Jesus is an alternative king and an alternative kind of king, quite a way before they learn that he is a wise teacher and miracle worker. Arguably, therefore, this puts them closer to ancient political biography than to any other category. Well, to sum up the lecture in four points. First, in terms of ancient Greco-Roman genres of literature, the Gospels are biographies of Jesus. Second, since the Gospels were written within living memory of the history of Jesus, they would be expected to be based on eyewitness testimony. Thirdly, as biographies of Jesus the Messiah, the Gospels are also continuations of the biblical history of the Hebrew Bible. And fourthly, unlike any of the subjects of ancient biographies, Jesus is presented in the Gospels as a figure of fully universal significance. Thank you.